computational integrity is a property that is required for financial transactions on the internet. Computational integrity means that the output of a certain computation is correct. If I deposit money into my bank, my bank sends me a number that represents the account balance. I assume that the number they have sent me is correct, but the bank could be lying to me. Maybe this bank is not actually trustworthy. But I use a bank with a good reputation. If the bank stole money from its users, it would quickly go out of business. Therefore, I feel safe by trusting a bank with my money, because the bank needs to maintain its reputation. The problem with a reputation-based system is that it's opaque. It's not easy for us to audit the bank and prove the bank actually has the money that it claims to have. Most of the time, the reputation-based systems that we use work fine, but occasionally we have catastrophic events. Think of the 2008 financial crisis or the Bernie Madoff financial scandal. These circumstances would have been avoided if the financial institutions could have been continuously audited for their solvency. With blockchains and cryptocurrencies, we now have tools that allow us to maintain computational integrity without the opaque systems of reputation. We no longer have to trust a central authority. We can verify computational integrity with math. Ellie Ben Sasson is a co-founder and chief scientist at Starkware Industries, a company that is bringing zero-trust technology to market. Implementations of zero-trust technology include ZK Starks, ZK Snarks, and Bulletproofs. Starkware is focused on the applications of ZK Starks, which can be used to improve scalability and privacy. Ellie joins the show to discuss the topic of computational integrity and how Starks can be used to provide scalable, secure infrastructure to blockchain applications. Ellie Ben Sasson, you are a co-founder and chief scientist of Starkware Industries. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me here, Jeffrey. I want to start by talking about the topic of computational integrity. What is computational integrity? It is a desirable property that means that the computation being executed on your behalf is executed correctly. So if you have a program and it receives a certain input, you would like to be assured that the output was computed correctly. And we think of this as a trivial matter, but it actually is extremely important, you know, in financial worlds or forensic applications. And we sort of take it for granted, but it's really not. One way that we can get computational integrity is from an authoritative source. Like if we interact with a bank, we have some degree of computational integrity. How does a bank provide computational integrity? It really is a trust assumption, if you think about it. There's nothing on a technological level that prevents a bank from, say, seizing all of my funds and all of the funds in my account and transferring them someplace else. What backs computational integrity in a bank, first of all, are things like its reputation. So it has some incentive to uh, you know, operate with computational integrity. There are also auditors and regulators that, that look at it and you know, various bankers are signing with their name and on, on statements that, that they are operating with integrity. So there's a pretty big manual apparatus that is set in place to check and enforce computational integrity. But there's nothing at the system level 
uh, that inherently prevents, you know, compromising integrity if those institutions choose so. Well, what's the difference between having a system level enforcement of computational integrity versus a system where there are auditors and there's reputation? This seems like its own sort of system for providing computational integrity. Well, people are prone to corruption. They could be bribed. They could look the other way. And these things have happened in the past. There's also a pretty large cost for maintaining all of this manual apparatus, you know, the big buildings, the fancy suits, the um, people who are doing all of these checks. So you could get things to be a little bit more efficient if you didn't have this manual aspect to it. I guess those are two of the main problems with the way the system is right now. We can potentially get computational integrity from a blockchain. How would a blockchain provide computational integrity? It does so pretty much by design. I mean, if you take a Bitcoin as the most famous example, but other permissionless blockchains are are the same. Um, there really is no easy way for me to seize uh, someone else's funds inside Bitcoin, even if I want to. And there's no manual trust. There's no trust in humans to ascertain this or enforce this. It really is cryptographically hard. Stealing someone's funds is as hard as either, you know, uh, breaking a hash function or a cryptographic digital signature, or the simpler thing that actually does happen sometimes is is stealing their keys by by other means but the system is pretty uh, robust uh, by by definition without any human intervention that's pretty impressive so in the system of banks i might have to get the bank audited in order to know that the bank actually has enough money on the books to be able to pay me back there are similar kinds of relationships over a blockchain environment where we have supposed guarantees about some other account having a certain amount of money in it how does the world of blockchain computational integrity contrast with our normal banking world? That's a uh, terrific question. So the conventional world delegates the process of accountability. We delegate it to to other humans, to experts, to auditors, you know, uh, the various accounting firms. And, and they come and they inspect stuff, right? They, you know, maybe get access to the computers or they see some reports and, and they check them. So it is a delegated form of accountability. Bitcoin and the other permissionless blockchains have a very extreme different solution to this problem that I'd like to call inclusive accountability. It's a little bit like direct democracy. In inclusive accountability, everyone is invited to participate in the process of checking and verifying computational integrity. So for instance, if you're going to download a Bitcoin or Ethereum or Zcash client and you know run it as a full node, one of the very first things it will do will be to download the full blockchain from the Genesis block and verify each and every transaction. And thereby, you will be serving as one more auditor in this big uh, process of inclusive, inclusive accountability. Let's Let's reinforce why a blockchain is new, why it provides something newer that we didn't have before blockchain and cryptocurrency technology. What is so novel about how a blockchain provides computational integrity? What's novel here is that there is a very ingenious game of of incentives that invites everyone to sort of participate and and check the, the integrity of the system 
And it's a very open and transparent and inclusive framework where the trust uh, basically lies on the, you know, on every and each of us participating in this process. Now, it's very different from, you know, if I want to go and audit my bank and see everything about it and check uh, that, that everything is okay, I, I can't, right? I, no one would allow this. There are actually laws probably that prevent this. And, and certainly I wouldn't be given access to this. So it's a very different system in which uh, sort of, you know, all of uh, the human race is sort of invited to participate and boost uh, trust in the system by, by just running their computers to verify all the transactions that are going uh, on there. It's, it's pretty different. Now, of course, with the auditor solution, getting our banks audited, there are plenty of problems. But if we want to have computational integrity ensured on a blockchain, we need to replay all of the computations that have occurred across history. What are the problems with a blockchain's solution to computational integrity? So to, to achieve this magnificent uh, principle or ideal of inclusive accountability, the system has to, to pay in other ways. One of the ways in which it is paying is in limiting severely the rate of transactions, the throughput of the system. And this is set in place in order to allow everyone to participate in this inclusive accountability. But this leads to severe restrictions on the scalability of such systems. Now, in a sort of more delegated model, you could just increase the throughput by requesting the parties that are involved, let's say the banks or the financial system, to buy a faster computer or a bigger disk or, you know, have a higher bandwidth. But if you want to maintain inclusive accountability, you can't have that. You need to limit the throughput so that everyone can, you know, on their laptops, verify integrity of everything that's happening. So, and the reason is that sort of everyone needs to check. I mean, the way the system is right now, everyone is checking each and every transaction a little bit similar to the way that we used to inspect, uh, you know, restaurant bills in the days before computers and, and uh, when we got these slips of papers that, you know, owners sort of computed the, uh, the total sum. A similar thing is going on in, in Bitcoin where our computers are checking each and every transaction in order to maintain this uh, computational integrity. That's a pretty big price. There are prices that we're paying in terms of scalability, but also in terms of privacy. And I'd like to go through each of these. Can you start with the scalability issues of a blockchain? Yeah. So uh, famously, Bitcoin, I think, uh, was, you know, its throughput was around 10 transactions per second. Uh, whereas, let's say, Visa deals uh, on average with 2,000 transactions per second and peaks at uh, 25 or 50,000 transactions per second. So it's like three orders of magnitude uh, higher than that of Bitcoin. Now, there was a huge battle in Bitcoin over this scalability issue. How do we increase the throughput? And, you know, whether you could um, double or multiply by eight the number of transactions. But it was clear that you can't just multiply it by or increase it by three orders of magnitude. Not because there aren't enough computers, there aren't strong enough computers that could, you know, check transactions at that rate. But because it would completely exclude a lot of the people that are currently helping to check uh, all these transactions. 
right? They would sort of need to go and buy some very strong server in order to track what's going on in the system. So scalability is a huge problem in permissionless blockchains because of the principle of inclusive accountability. If you want to allow everyone to check everything that's happening on, on their meager, you know, standard computer devices, you can't have enormous scale of transactions as you have in a dedicated financial payment system. So that's the problem of scalability on a permissionless blockchain with inclusive accountability. And there are also privacy issues because we're publishing all of our transactions on the blockchain. Maybe they're pseudonymous, but there is a degree to which we are exposed. And that's problematic if we want to have uh, privacy across our transactions. Explain the privacy issues of, of, of a blockchain in more detail. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Jeffrey. I mean, if all transactions need to be verified by everyone, um, then indeed, it's like seeing, you know, all payments that are going on in the payment system. Everyone gets to see them. It's important that everyone sees them. So now if you don't take uh, special precautions or build special systems like, you know, zero knowledge proofs, then financial privacy will be lost. And you can't really imagine a world where a big business, let's say Boeing, can do all of its financial transactions on such a blockchain because then its uh, competitor, you know, Airbus, would learn a whole lot about its financial dealings. And this is something we can't allow, not because we want, you know, not because of criminal activity, but because of legitimate businesses that need to be able to compete and sort of keep their financial transactions private. Now, there are these entities that can be built on top of blockchain technology. For example, cryptocurrency exchanges. Maybe I want to start a cryptocurrency exchange and I'm an honest guy. I want to have my customers feel confident that their funds are intact, but I don't want to make everybody's balance public. I, I could do that if I made everybody's balance public and I gave everybody public proof that that uh, everybody's balances were intact, you know, that would ensure that I do have the funds intact and people would trust me, but then people wouldn't have privacy. So how can we solve this problem of the trade-off between the privacy and the uh, and the security? So one solution is uh, trusting, you know, the, the operator of the exchange. But this is sort of back to the conventional model that we're sort of trying to improve on. The other solution is to use uh, modern cryptography, in particular things like zero-knowledge proofs that prove in a cryptographic way the computational integrity of the system. And the zero-knowledge aspect actually proves this without uh, revealing any information about the uh, you know state of the system. It just proves that it is being maintained with integrity. So you could use that as a different solution for this problem or paradox of privacy along with integrity on a public blockchain. A zero-knowledge proof is a type of interactive proof. And we've been using interactive proofs in computer science for a long time. These are useful for allowing multiple parties to come to an agreement on some shared truth. Can you give a few simple examples of how we use interactive proofs in software engineering? Well, one would say that uh, a lot of the password protocols that we're all uh, doing, you know, where you get uh, your computer gets a certain challenge and responds, uh, these are, you know, special cases of interactive proofs, uh, you know, various handshakes uh, being done uh, when you set up a new a secure connection. Those use interactive protocols that uh, involve some aspects of interactive proofs. I mean, some very simple aspects of them, but I, I guess those are pretty 
you know, ubiquitous examples of the use of interaction and cryptography in, you know, secure network systems. A zero-knowledge proof is this type of interactive proof where we are proving something without exposing more information than we need to. Can you describe a zero-knowledge proof in more detail and, and describe what a zero-knowledge proof enables? Yeah, so if you think of a proof as some something, you know, some string of characters that's written or is in, in the interactive setting, it's sort of this transcript of questions and answers that all of them revolve around proving that a certain claim is, is true. So think a little bit of like, uh, you know, uh, an examination in a court of law where a claim is being uh, made, you know, someone is saying some, some claim, like, uh, for instance, someone who was uh, uh, who is being prosecuted for, for theft might say as an alibi, you know, on the day of this uh, crime, of this theft, I was in a different country. And then there will be this process of examination, right, with questions and answers, you know, where's the, can you prove to us that you boarded a plane, you know, what was the name of the city you visited on the day of that that thing, and there, there are answers being given. So, a zero-knowledge proof, which is in stark contrast to the kind of examination that would go in a court of law, a zero-knowledge proof is one in which if you look at the transcript at the end, and you ask yourself, what have I learned? The answer would be, I gained zero knowledge beyond knowing that the claim was correct. And it's a very magical and counterintuitive kind of notion, right? Because in a court of law examination, you would say, oh, if I listen to what's going on, I'm going to learn a whole lot more. For instance, I'm going to learn what was the name of the city this person visited, you know, which hotel he stayed at. Well, with a zero knowledge proof, you would learn nothing about that. You would only learn that the person was not, you know, in the, in the country or the city at the time of the purported crime. Let's take a simple example. Let's say that you, me, and several other people, let's say three other people, have each deposited money in a bank. So we all put in $100, and at some point in the future, we all want to audit the bank. But we don't want to hire an auditor. We want to do this in a way that's that maintains computational integrity but does not require an auditor. How can the bank prove to each of us that the bank has enough money to pay all of us back? So if the bank, you know, publishes, let's say, on a daily basis, a hash or a commitment, a cryptographic commitment to the set of all of its assets, right? And it does so and let's say, posts it on, on some blockchain. So all you see is this hash that you know that came from the bank on a daily basis. And then later on, but, but this hash is supposed to be, uh, if it's maintained with computational integrity, it's supposed to reflect the you know, true state of, of the bank's accounts on every, any given day. So if later on, you know, a month later, some people come to the bank and say, oh, we want the bank to prove to us that our funds were included a month ago in, in, in the accounting process, the bank could produce a zero-knowledge proof that says, you know, person such and such, your funds that had, let's say, $1,000 were included in the hash from a month ago, and when we computed all of our assets and, you know, liabilities and deposits and everything, we were in the black and uh, we included your assets in the process. As your knowledge proof would tell that person that, that you know, her funds are, are included in the bank's reserves, but would leak no further information about the state of the bank's accounts. That's the magic property of zero-knowledge proofs. How do we know that the bank was telling the truth all along? Why couldn't the bank be defrauding us by publishing false hashes on the blockchain? 
So in the cryptocurrency universe, this would be much harder because the bank can't just claim to have funds that it doesn't control. Part of the proof would be that it knows the secret keys that control the funds. But in the conventional system, yeah, the bank could have been cheating all along, but it does uh, raise the bar a little bit because the bank in advance, you know, like on any given day needs to already make up the sort of inconsistent statements that later on and commit to them on some, you know, blockchain or some public site and later on be able to answer proof in zero knowledge that that person's uh, balances are being accounted for as part of the general process. And if everyone knows that this is the thing that's happening, you know, we walk around with our little apps that are constantly monitoring the computational integrity of the whole big bank by, again, a process of inclusive accountability, but one that also maintains privacy. So it's not like I would need on a daily basis to go and you know pick up the phone and, and, and ask the bank. Rather, my, my app would alert to me if it didn't receive uh, on an, any given day uh, a valid proof. So you could set it up to be some automatic process that constantly checks and validates the computational integrity of the bank with privacy. Now, at this point, it should be intuitive to the listeners that zero-knowledge proofs are useful for privacy applications. Clearly, we've illustrated that uh, we're, we're able to declare the solvency of the bank without revealing the balances of all of the users. But what about scalability? How does the fact that we have zero-knowledge technology improve scalability of blockchains? So certain zero-knowledge proofs, not all of them, have this magical scalability aspect, which means that if uh, the computation for checking, you know, a certain statement of computational integrity, if the naive way to check it by running the computation and replaying it takes um, T steps, verifying a zero-knowledge proof could be exponentially faster. So, for instance, if running the naive computation would take uh, 1 billion time steps, verifying a zero-knowledge proof of the correctness of the statement could be exponentially smaller than that. And, you know, the logarithm of 1 billion is 30. So, in something that is more like 30 time steps, you could verify the computational integrity of a statement or a correct execution of a program that naively would take a billion steps to finish. How would we actually apply zero-knowledge proofs to improving the blockchain infrastructure? Do we have to update the core cryptocurrency protocols, or how can we introduce this into our ecosystem? So it all depends if it's a layer one or layer two solution. So for instance, in in Ethereum, you could envision a world, and, and that's actually something that Starkware, that our company is going to be deploying soon, you could envision a a smart contract that runs a zero-knowledge verifier for scalability. And that verifier could be checking that a huge batch of uh, computations or transactions executed correctly. And for that, you don't need any change to uh, the underlying uh, blockchain. If you want it to be what's called a layer one solution, something like Plasma or some solution where at the very basic level of the blockchain, it it operates correctly, then you would need a change or a fork to the system. So describe the state of zero-knowledge proof technology as it's deployed today. Where do we have zero-knowledge proofs in in, uh, production? 
Well, I think the, the obvious and most famous place that has it in production is the Zcash cryptocurrency, where ZK snarks are used to uh, shield transactions. So I'm also a co-founder and uh, sorry, a founding scientist of uh, the Zcash company. I was one of the co-authors of the academic research behind it. I think that's probably the uh, first real product in the wild of a full-scale universal kind of zero-knowledge system um, out there. That's uh, Zcash. And there are several zero-knowledge data structures and algorithms. There's Starks and Snarks and Bulletproofs. And I don't want to break these down in detail on the podcast. I think of this podcast more of as giving people a, a kind of a, a hint at what is interesting about the technology here and some of the applications. If they are interested in the, in the, in the gratuitous details, they can certainly find plenty of online resources, including ones you've produced. But I would like to describe some of the trade-offs at, at a high level that these different zero-knowledge tools are making. Yeah, so at a very high level, I think the, the, the trade-off, as you go from snarks to bulletproofs to starks, is you are, as you go in that direction, you are increasing the communication complexity or the size of the zero-knowledge proof. But in return, you're removing some trust assumptions and some cryptographic assumptions. So, for instance, uh, I mean, snarks have the shortest proofs, the ones that are in Zcash. They are uh, roughly 200 bytes long, but it requires a trusted setup, uh, toxic waste uh, thing. So that's snarks. Bulletproofs, their size are roughly fact, one order of magnitude longer, let's say around you know two kilobytes instead of 200 bytes, but there's no trusted setup. Now, both of these systems are still uh, prone to uh, attacks by quantum computers and rely on number theoretic assumptions, and their proving time is, you know, is, is quite heavy. And Starks have, uh, you know, are plausibly post-quantum secure, have the fastest provers, and no trusted setup. So again, as but but their proofs are in order of magnitude larger than bulletproofs. So as you go from snark to bulletproofs to Starks, you're increasing communication complexity or proof size, but reducing the crypto assumptions and uh, also uh, making things a little bit faster. What does that term trusted setup mean? So trusted setup means that there's a set of parameters, think of them as some global set of keys that every user of the system must use. And and these keys actually, there is associated with them some sort of trapdoor. And it requires great care to make sure that this trapdoor is not, you know, revealed to anyone as the keys are being generated. And and the Zcash company orchestrated an amazing secure multi-party computation process for ensuring that this is the case. But it's a pretty, um, you know, it's a pretty high bar to stand by. And uh, everyone agrees that you'd be much better off if the systems you're using just simply do not require a trusted setup, as is the case with Starks. One characteristic of the cryptocurrency space that is so interesting to me is the fact that 
much of this technology in terms of its implementation is is so unprecedented. So with Zcash, you had this unprecedented technology being being brought to market. As you were observing the the Zcash team bringing this or maybe you would call it a product currency to market, what were your observations of 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 that process? What was hard about it and what lessons about engineering cryptocurrencies did you learn? Oh, many I mean, I have such a deep level of admiration, not just for, uh, you know, Zuko, the CEO, and, and Nathan, the CTO, but like all of the amazing engineers of the Zcash company, Dara and Sean and, and others there that did a marvelous job of releasing cutting edge cryptographic technology under tight schedules in the most secure and yet transparent manner that that can be done. I think it's a lot about, you know, the ability to focus, to deliver a very high level of uh, technical power and, uh, you know, mathematical depth and ingenuity. And it's it's really uh, amazing to see the level of expertise and uh, that that is delivered by the Zcash company. It's, it's really uh, inspiring. And you are a founder of Starkware, and I, I want to talk about that in, in some detail. But did you learn anything from the commercialization strategy, the business strategy of Zcash and the Zcash company? Uh, did, did that at all inform how you thought about company creation? Yes. I mean, you know, just, just getting to watch um, Zuko and the great team operate, I'm sure that it's sort of, you know, by diffusion, I learned a lot of stuff because after all, you know, I'm, I'm a professor and a theoretician, so, you know, there was so much to learn that would be a little bit hard to put into words the exact, you know, takeaway messages that, that, that I learned from it. Um, you know, a lot about um, defining what are the most important things uh, for the company. And probably the most important thing is, is the people that you partner with and the way you partner with them. I mean, you know, again, the, the, what I saw in, in Zcash and continue to see is really very uh, inspiring, the level of trust and leadership there. So I think that's what I learned from that experience. What caused you to start a company? Well, in the case of Starks, it was this sort of uh, obvious next uh, step. So the research behind Starks was something is something that I've been passionate about since uh, 2001 when I started my postdoc at uh, Harvard and MIT. And you know, I there's only so much you can do with stuff uh, when you're inside the academic world. I mean, the amount of like resources and focus that you can bring to sort of really bring it into life. So it sort of uh, was obvious that in order to see these things come to fruition, commercial effort is 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 really needed at some point. Now with Starkware, we'll, we'll talk about what the company is building, but in terms of the problems that you're solving. The first problem that you're focused on is scalability. You want to move computations and storage off chain. Explain what this means. So what it means is, uh, so remember, we talked a little bit about this property of inclusive accountability. So we want to allow everyone to keep tracking the computational integrity of the system. But at the same time, without, you know, increasing, you know, or buying some big server. But at the same time, we would like to scale up the throughput of the system, hopefully exponentially. Now, Starks are a special kind of zero-knowledge technology in which um, you can do this because 
if you have a single prover that processes you know a lot of transactions that prover can prove to everyone else in the system that updates done to the system are correct are done with computational integrity and everyone else can verify that exponentially faster than the amount of throughput so what Starkware is going to do is offer solutions in which you know off-chain some big prover machine generates proofs that process an exponential amount of, of transaction, and everyone else can check that the system is still operating with integrity by just verifying exponentially small proofs. The first target application for Starkware is decentralized exchanges. Can you explain what a decentralized exchange is? Yeah, so a decentralized exchange, I mean, it's a little, I mean, that, that's the common term for these th- things, but uh, more accurately, they could be described as non-custodial exchanges. So the big exchanges like NASDAQ and whatnot, they, they don't really hold the custody of the various stocks. That's a different entity, a clearinghouse or things like that, that, that holds it. And, and the exchange only operates, you know, only as this marketplace where people trade and then settle uh, elsewhere. Now, to Today, we have this anomaly in the uh, cryptocurrency world where a lot of the biggest exchanges also need to hold custody of the funds that their customers are trading in so that actually each trade, um, the counterparty to it is the centralized exchange. And this causes, uh, you know, this is a very costly to those businesses. It's also very dangerous. We hear from time to time about exchanges being hacked. I mean, there there are these huge honeypots. And it's really an anomaly. In other markets, you don't see this. But it's because the, um, the, the way you want to do things, which is the decentralized way or non-custodian way, is just impossible today because of scalability. So what is the decentralized way? You know, if I own an asset and you own a different asset and we each one of us puts our order inside some order book, we would like the trade to occur without needing to transfer custody to the exchange. And that's what a decentralized exchange allows. It allows people to trade without transferring custody to the exchange. And the problem with these systems right now is just that they have very limited scalability because of the you know limited scalability of blockchains. And that's what we're going to solve. That's what Starkware is going to solve. Just to clarify what kind of exchange we're talking about here. Uh, We can contrast it with something like Mt. Gox. So Mt. Gox was an exchange that lost customer funds or they're unknown. Mt. Gox was not a decentralized uh, custodial service. Could you contrast Mt. Gox with a decentralized exchange? Yeah, so Mt. Gox was holding custody or maintaining custody of the funds of its customers. So if you had an account at Mt. Gox, let's say for 100 Bitcoins, so you didn't really hold those 100 Bitcoins. The keys to those 100 Bitcoins were held with Mt. Gox. And that's why when Mt. Gox got hacked, if you, you, know, you would have lost your funds. Now, in a non-custodial or decentralized exchange, That's not the case. The exchange never maintains custody of your funds. You come there, uh, you know, you put an order on the order book, you sign it. If, If that order is filled, then sort of there's an atomic swap between the asset you're trading and the other asset, you know, you want to get an exchange. But 
the decentralized exchange itself never holds custody of those funds. That's a very important property because now you remove this security threat of someone, you know, hacking it and doing an amount gox on it. So if we want to audit these decentralized cryptocurrency exchanges, what would we need to do? So first, uh, you could use uh, zero-knowledge technology to audit those exchanges. But actually, since those exchanges don't really hold custody of the funds, auditing them is not that important because the customers are the ones holding the funds. So it's not as important to audit those exchanges as it is to audit a custodial exchange, right? Because, you know, with Mt. Gox, I have to worry, do they really still hold my coins? But with a non-custodial exchange, I know that by definition, it never holds my coins and it can't steal them. So there's less of a threat. Indeed. There are scalability issues, though, to the decentralized exchange model. What are the scalability issues? Yeah, definitely. So the huge advantage of a centralized exchange is that most of the settlement doesn't happen on chain. It all happens only in the books of the exchange, right? Let's say Mt. Gox. But with a decentralized exchange, all trades must be settled immediately on the blockchain. And the blockchain has limited throughput. So because of that, you can't really reach large scale. And then there's limited liquidity and the exchange is not as, you know, interesting as one of those custodial exchanges. But we're going to change that with uh, StarkDex and allow much greater scalability on non-custodial exchanges. Describe the application of Starks to this particular use case. So we're building StarkDex, which is a settlement engine at large scale for DEXs. So how it's going to work is, I mean, the way it's going to work is like this. A decentralized exchange will have an order book and people will put their orders and sign them saying, you know, I'm willing to trade uh, today for this cost, uh, this certain asset. The exchange, and I sign it, right? But I'm not handing custody. I'm just putting an order. I'm just placing an order. It's a conditional statement. Now, if there is a match for my order, someone else wants to sell what I want to buy, then the exchange will sort of match together these, uh, you know, the buys and the sells, and then send a batch of these trades to the StarkDex settlement engine. And the StarkDex settlement engine will take a large batch, let's say of, uh, I don't know, 500 trades, and will generate a proof, a Stark proof, that all of these trades settled correctly, meaning that the orders were matched and, you know, the the various uh, parameters that each buyer and seller wanted were okay. So the StarkDex proof will assert the computational integrity of the settlement process, But crucially, you won't be sending those settlements onto the main chain. All of that will be done off-chain. The only thing you'll be sending to the chain will be a proof of computational integrity. Could you describe why this cannot be done on the main chain? Why do you need to do this at the second layer? Yeah, so take Ethereum, for instance. Ethereum has a gas cost limit of 8 million gas per block. Now, settling a single trade is roughly 200,000 gas. And this means that you can at most settle 40 trades on a block, right? 8 million divided by 200,000, that should be um, 40 trades. Okay, you can't do anything more. It's a, There's linear cost. 
the number of trades times 200,000 gas, that's, uh, you know, that must be less than 8 million. Now with uh, Stark Dex, we already showed at the uh, Stanford um, blockchain conference about uh, two weeks ago, we already showed in our demo that we can settle something that corresponds to a batch of 500 trades well below the gas cost. And this is because of the exponential speed up of Starks. So we're already one order of magnitude better than what you can settle directly on the chain. I think we'll even improve things further. And what kind of software do you have to build in order to implement this? And what's the deployment process for that software? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have uh, all proof systems, including ours, has two parts. There's the prover and the verifier. The verifier is going to be sitting on the Ethereum blockchain. So it is going to be a smart contract written in Solidity. And a little bit of uh, Ethereum assembly. Uh, So it's going to be some Ethereum smart contract, and we're developing that, and a lot of effort is going into uh, reducing um, the gas cost of of this uh, specific contract, and also integrating it with uh, other parts of the uh, decentralized exchange world, and we're working on this closely with uh, the Zero X team, you know, Will Warren's team, and uh, closely with Remco, one of their core developers there, in order to integrate StarkDex uh, with the Zero uh, X uh, platform for decentralized exchanges. Now, the other part is the prover node. The prover node it doesn't sit on-chain, so it's not being written in Solidity. It's a very heavy piece of code. It's a pretty heavy computation. And that part is being written uh, mostly in C++, a little bit in assembly, but it, it doesn't sit on the, on-chain, so you know it doesn't, be, doesn't have to be written in Solidity. Does the prover node sit on on DEX infrastructure or does it sit on client devices? Where, where does that stuff sit exactly? The nice thing about the whole, uh, you know, using a Stark proof system is that from the point of view of the main chain and its computational integrity, it doesn't really matter where the prover node sits. I mean, it's a heavy computation, but as long as the verifier is happy with the proofs, it means that the uh, prover operated correctly. So it could sit on a big Amazon machine. It could sit on some strong server. It could be distributed in a number of ways. I mean, it's definitely a heavy computation. So typically you won't run it for scaling. You won't run it on a smartphone, but it could be running on a laptop or a strong server or on the cloud. What's the state of deployment process? How much of this software have you built and 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 tested in production? So none of it is production yet. So our plan is to put the smart contract and the prover alpha out there by the end of Q1, which is, you know, roughly in a little a little over one month. But we will put it first on Ethereum's testnet. So it won't yet be, a, you know, production. We're in the final phases of know finalizing the code and then we want to live leave a few weeks for you know testing and auditing and that sort of stuff before we put it on the test net and then uh, we hope that uh, within half a year we'll be ready for uh, moving it into production 
if we don't see any bugs or issues. So that's roughly where we're standing uh, with uh, the development of the code. To drive home the value of this this particular innovation, Starks applied to decentralized exchanges. What are some of the downstream impacts this could have, whether it's to you know liquidity of the markets or how that liquidity of the markets would affect the, the broader blockchain ecosystem? What, what are your thoughts on the downstream impact? Yeah, so I think that uh, we may be, I mean, I hope that's the case, but I think we may be someday in a situation where there isn't a whole lot of uh, business being done in the custodial kind of exchanges because those are extremely risky to the you know exchanges themselves and to the customers. So I think uh, with our technology will help you know move the industry a little bit towards the more conventional model where you know clearing and settlement are not and and certainly maintaining custody are not part of what the exchange offers this uh, makes um, things much easier first and foremost for you know for the businesses but also for the customers it makes things safer and better so i think that you know if all goes well i think that many and most of the large exchanges out there will be doing most of their business uh, through decentralized and non-custodial exchanges. And we're eager to help them reach that state. Why did you choose the application of DEXs as your first target application? So, I mean, we, we had this process where we uh, you know looked at several different things that we could do to uh, bring uh, Starks into the world. It seemed to us that um, DEX was the best thing for several reasons. First of all, it's a layer two solution. So we don't need to wait for some hard fork or some, you know, internal blockchain politics to mature, but rather we can write a smart contract and be done with it. That's a huge advantage of of this uh, solution. The second thing we wanted is we wanted to be able to operate in a space where there are other players there. So I mentioned Zero X, you know, there are a whole bunch of exchanges out there that are operating very successful businesses. So we wanted to be able to work with these partners as much as we can and speed things up. And we also wanted a, a pretty, you know, big challenge. And we think X is the right first step. It's not the last, but it's a pretty good first step. If all goes according to plan, do you have any or can you say what your next application might be? What makes sense to go to next? Well, we're we're considering all kinds of of options. I mean, you know, there are various kinds of things one might do that are related to DEXs, like, you know, offering some forms of solutions for, uh, you know, KYC and AML. KYC is know your customer and AML is anti-money laundering technologies. There's a possibility for proving all kinds of self-auditing things like proofs of reserve and proofs of solvency that we discussed. I mean, a special case of, of, of or a simpler case of, of decentralized exchanges is that of operating only with a single currency, and that would be some sort of a payment solution, uh, things that are like lightning and things like that. There's always the option of adding privacy and zero knowledge to these things if the markets you know, desire. So there are a really large number of options that we're exploring right now, but we haven't made any decisions. And we really need to, first of all, to get our alpha there and our MVP, hopefully, you know, half a year later, and then we can see where, you know, the market takes us. We're in a a time where there is, at least from what I've seen, a growing number of people who believe that uh, 
everything that you could potentially do on Ethereum, you will someday be able to do on top of Bitcoin as a second layer solution. And this is the Bitcoin maximalism argument. Is that at all compelling to you as somebody who is working in the Ethereum ecosystem? One of the advantages of not having our own coin and not doing an ICO is that we are, first of all, a little bit agnostic to the question of, you know, which is the true and right, uh, whatever, cryptocurrency. And we would be eager to deploy our technology on any uh, blockchain that allows us to do so. If Bitcoin will be that one day, we will, of course, be eager and happy to work with whoever it is to make it happen. You know, I, I mean, I hear things... Let's say that Bitcoin is going to always stay too conservative and, you know, has governance issues. And I hear statements like you said that uh, everything, the only thing that's going to remain is Bitcoin and it will adapt, adopt all other technologies. Yeah, making predictions is very hard, especially concerning the future. So at Starkware, we just want to deploy our technology on any on any serious uh, blockchain that, that will allow us to do so. Why is WebAssembly useful for blockchain applications? I think it's mainly a standard that there are going to be a whole lot of tools developed for it, and it's going to be a little bit faster. So it's like the next thing after you know, JavaScript and things like that. So, and it's always good to use things that are, that have good um, development stacks and so on, and are cross-platform cross and so on. So that's why I think uh, WebAssembly could be really useful. Uh, it also is a sort of uh, encapsulated in a way that makes it a little, a little bit more secure to use also in the environment of a blockchain. So I think those are the reasons. To close off, uh, you were a professor before starting Starkware. How does your your work in academia and teaching existentially, how does that compare to life as an entrepreneur? Oh, that's a great question. So I, I love academic work. I think it's really uh, so important for humanity. Academics are like uh, space explorers, but the um, space we're exploring is this you know, the space of knowledge, right out there at the boundary of knowledge and looking, you know, into the abyss and finding or trying to find our way in the dark. That's what the experience of uh, doing research in academia is. You're trying, you're aiming for the most far-fetched ideas that you're not even sure could actually work. And, and you certainly don't worry about, you know, whether it's practical or is it profitable or you only care about, is it novel? Is it beautiful? Is it, might it fly? And then um, startups or industries, they're sort of a mirror image of this. You're trying to find the fastest way to reach something that is sustainable, you know, profitable, that is actually usable. It's a different experience. I would also say that work in academic research is a little bit more more uh, lonely. I mean, you're. I mean, you have your students and a few peers, but you and and startups are much more of a teamwork, and so it's a different experience. But I think uh, I was fortunate to enjoy both worlds. I really like them. Ellie, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm looking forward to the further developments of Starkware. Thank you, Jeffrey, so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Wow.